Glad to be in God's house today. Amen. Good to be together. Uh, find Second Peter in your copy of the Scripture. Of course, Second Peter is all the way near the back of your Bible. So go to Revelation and just turn back a couple of books and you will arrive at the book of Second Peter. And this morning I want us to look at chapter 1 and we're going to talk on the subject matter living for Christ and growing in faith in a hostile world. Living for Christ and growing in faith in a hostile world. I know Jonathan told you to be seated, but I'm going to ask you to stand again for the reading of God's Word. Can, you, can we do that, please? And let's begin at verse 2. Peter says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, folks, let me stop there a minute and say this is a very densely packed passage. Loads of precepts and truth in it that I want you to highlight each and every phrase and sentence that Peter is, is offering here because, again, it's such a densely packed passage. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind." Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be that which Jesus promised he would be. That he would be our teacher. And that he would guide us into all truth. Lord, your word is truth. And we pray this morning that you would sanctify us with that truth. Open our hearts and minds that we will see what your spirit is saying to the church. Lord, we pray that, that we would understand this text and that it would be applied in our daily lives as we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And, and Father, we know that in the world, 
we will find opposition and we will not find very much encouragement. But in the body of Christ, may we pray for one another and encourage one another till we see Jesus. And may we be found faithful to the end. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, last week we looked at the life of Simon Peter. We looked at Peter's life in John 21 after Jesus had publicly reinstated Simon Peter. You'll recall from that text that he asked Peter, he said, Simon, do you love me? And Peter responded by saying, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus asked Simon Peter that three times to the point that it it hurt Simon Peter's feelings. But we know what Jesus was doing. Peter had denied the Lord three times and through three opportunities, Jesus was reinstating Peter and when Peter said yes you know all things you know that I love you Jesus said feed my sheep in other words if you love me then be about my business and take care of my lambs my sheep Peter if you love me then do my will And then, of course, Peter went on to ask, what about him? Referring to the Apostle John. And and Jesus said, don't worry about my plan with John. I've got a plan with him too. But you don't need to worry about that, Simon Peter. You worry instead about what I've called you to do. Folks, we see in the New Testament that God has a plan and a purpose and a call for each and every one of us. We've got a race to run. And a fight to fight. As Paul told the Corinthians, we are to run in order to win. And we are to fight in order to win. We aren't to take our eyes off the prize or beat the air as one swinging aimlessly. There's to be great purpose and dedication to the Christian's life. And you and I need to remember this. But sometimes with all that we face in the world, we may wonder if we have the resources that we need to see it through. Do we really have everything in Christ that we need in order to live the Christian life and to finish well? And Peter answers that question here with a resounding yes. God has given to you and me everything that we need. Christians don't ever need to conclude that the challenges that we face in the world are greater than the power of Christ in us to strengthen us and to see us through to the very end. Amen? Peter was writing to believers here who have been assaulted daily by by false teachers. And those who have turned away from the gospel. They were opposing the church and they were persecuting believers. And some of the believers were probably tired and fearful. After all, at this point in Christianity, the church has virtually no clout whatsoever in a pagan world that is against it. But the church has Christ. And Christ is enough to see us through. 
We have more than we need in Christ. Folks, as I've been trying to communicate to you, the fact that we have faced things that we faced this past year should not put our Christian faith or our service in lockdown. We don't ever see in the Bible that you and I get a respite until we see Jesus. And until then, we are to grow, we are to serve, we are to worship, we are to minister, and we are to go in Jesus' name. Peter had learned this lesson well. And all we have to do to see that is read the early chapters of the book of Acts. Peter was a new man after Jesus reinstated him and after he experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. In fact, Peter became a fearless preacher of the gospel. He even stood against the authorities who told him and John that they had to quit preaching Jesus. And they said, we must obey God rather than man. Well, we see him writing in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, we see him writing to the tribes of Israel who were scattered abroad. In other words, he's writing to Christians who were in Christ who are now included in the spiritual Israel. And he tells them in 2 Peter 3.18 that they are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. He begins 2 Peter by telling them how they are to grow. And that's what we see in our text today. We see in this passage that through God's grace we can grow and that growth will provide some blessed assurances for us in our hearts. In other words, growth in and of itself will be a great evidence of our conversion. It's as Jesus said in John 15, 8, By growing and abiding in Christ, we bear fruit. And by bearing fruit, we give confirmation that we are indeed Christ's disciples. Now, let's see how Peter develops all this. First of all, this morning, I want you to see with me, God's provision makes the Christian life and Christian growth possible. Look with me again at verses 3 and 4. And Greg upstairs, I'm going to ask you to give me a... I know I had you cut the monitor down. Give me just a tad of monitor up here so, so I won't yell. Look at verse 3 and 4. He says, His divine power has granted us all things that apply or pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What he's pointing out here, God's provision makes the Christian life and Christian growth possible. You know, at one time, such as before Jesus' reinstatement of Peter, Peter might have responded, but the Christian life is just too difficult. I thought I could do it, but I can't. But you know, that wouldn't be Peter's thought anymore. 
Very quickly in just two verses here, it's like Peter is giving us a Christianity 101 course reminding us of everything that God has done for us. And we see what we see is that from God's side, we have everything that we need in order to live the Christian life. Nobody can ever say, God has called me to live the Christian life, but he's not given me what I need in order to do so. You know, you've probably heard the expression before, they threw me to the wolves. And a lot of times you'll hear maybe somebody in business say that. That their company has given them a, a project to do, but hasn't given them the personnel or the budget resources to get it done. And yet they have this project on them that they're supposed to do. A and a timeline. And they say, they've thrown me to the wolves. They've told me what to do and given me this, this assignment, but they haven't given me what I need to get it done well folks no one can ever say when it comes to faith in Christ that God has thrown us to the wolves without the needed resources because when he calls us when he sends us he equips us in fact the apostle Paul says in Colossians 2.10 that we are complete in Christ well, let's see from these verses what God gives us in order to make us complete. Look at verse 3 again. He points out that God gives us true life. In other words, God gives us salvation. Notice that he speaks here of God's call and he speaks of the true knowledge of him. In Ephesians 2.1 the Bible says that we all come into this world dead in trespasses and sins. That's the problem for all of us. The universal problem of mankind is that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And because of that, we are estranged from God and we are under His wrath. That is the natural state of every person born on planet Earth. And you know what? Church membership in and of itself does not take care of that. Good deeds in and of themselves don't take care of that. A life of living the golden rule in and of itself does not correct that problem. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus came to be the sacrifice for sin. 1 Peter 3.18 says that the just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. There had to be a sacrifice for sin. You couldn't pay that price. I couldn't pay that price. Christ and Christ alone has paid that price. God, by His grace and love, quickens us and He makes us spiritually alive. Conversion is that process by which we go from spiritual death to spiritual life. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 6, No one can come to me unless my Father's Spirit draws him. 
The Spirit of God points out our need and the solution. He draws us to Jesus Christ and God regenerates us. Dr. Thomas Schreiner, one of our Southern Baptist theologians and a professor of Greek and New Testament and theology at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, he says of this verse right here, English readers are apt to understand calling in terms of an invitation that can be accepted or rejected. But he goes on to say, Peter, however, has something deeper in mind. God's call is effective, awakening and creating faith. Paul also referred to calling in this way. God awakens us. Our part is that we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ. And God is the one who gives us eternal life as a free gift. The point is, it is God's work and God's gift. Jesus said in John 1.13, Who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. As Peter says here, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The Christian life begins with conversion, with regeneration. And there's many ways this is described in the New Testament. We are born from above. We're born of the Spirit. We are regenerated. We are given new life. We are saved. All of those are expressions describing the beginning of the Christian life and they point out something to us and that is that the Christian life is not simply somebody deciding on their own that it's time that they turn over a new leaf. You'll hear some people say, I'm ready to reform my life. I'm going to stop smoking today. I'm going to Start working on my language and do better there. I'm going to start going to church periodically. I'm going to start driving within the speed limit. And on and on they go. I'm going to reform my life in some way. I'm going to try to be a better person. Folks, that, that is not what the New Testament means by salvation. The Christian life is God-giving spiritual life where previously there was only spiritual death. You and I were dead to God, but now in Christ, He has made us alive. You've got new desires, a new beginning, a new life. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus whereby the old is gone and the new has come as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Folks, I remember so clearly when that happened to me. And I, I began to love the things that before held no affection for me whatsoever. The greatest gift you will ever receive is the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. 
And as Peter also says in verse 3, this happens through the knowledge of Him who called us. Believers know God and are known by Him. If, you have, if you've had that experience, then the Bible says you've been reconciled to God, you've gone from death to life, and you are now in a state of being at peace with God. And again, folks, I want you to see the beautiful thing of grace that Peter is pointing out here. Whose work is this? It's God's work. This is what God does in somebody's life. But he's not done yet. He goes on in verse 4 to point out God's given us his promises that are precious and magnificent. What are some of these promises that are precious to us? Well, there's the forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future. There's being adopted into God's family. There's the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. There's the promise of God's presence with us. There's the comfort and help that we need through suffering and hardship. There's the promise of heaven when we die. There's the bodily resurrection when Christ returns. And there's the fact that he says we will reign with Christ forevermore. You know what? I'd have to say that those are great and precious promises. Amen? Wonderful promises. A great God has given great promises. Well, thirdly, related to this, Peter points out that God gives us escape from the corruption that's in the world. This was also hinted at in verse 3 when he says that God has given us not only life, but God has given us everything that pertains to godliness. Yes, we're still in the world. And we see all the corruption that's in the world. But we're not a part of that anymore. Christians are not a part of this present world system any longer. You're in the world but not of it. We are to come out and be separate from the corruption that is in the world through lust. He says through our sinful desires. John speaks of this in terms of lust. And he he says all that we see in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the sinful pride of life. And God, Peter says, gives us escape from that. We're to march to a different beat now. And then fourthly, Peter says here about this, that God allows us to become partakers of the divine nature. At conversion, the Holy Spirit comes in to abide with us forever. Ephesians 1.13 says, We are sealed at our conversion with the person of the Holy Spirit. And we become partakers of the divine nature. He's not saying we become gods, but rather that God now resides in us. And he's with us from now on. We can quench him. We can grieve him. Or we can be filled with him. And when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have a power working in and through you that you never had before. He becomes your counselor, your comforter, and your teacher. Folks, what Peter is trying to say to us here, and he's piling up 
phrase upon phrase, each phrase being very dense with with meaning. He's piling up phrase upon phrase, helping us to see that at conversion, God dwells in us, He changes us, He gives us a new nature, and He empowers us. I mean, you talk about an extreme makeover, there you have it. And it's not a makeover from the outside in, it's a makeover from the inside out. And you're not taken out of this world, but you're giving everything that you need to live as a child of God in this world. If the Christian life were a matter of you and I trying to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, we would fail. But God is with us to strengthen us and empower us and encourage us. Now, while all of this is wonderful news, I I hope you can see also what else is being done here. All of our excuses are being taken away. You can't hide behind human inability to grow or to serve. Any excuse you and I might have for growing in Christ, Peter has just taken all of those excuses away. Now, does all this mean that you have no part to play? Absolutely not. Secondly, this morning, I want you to see with me, God's provision is no excuse for inaction on the part of the believer. And he begins talking about that in verse 5. Look at what he says there. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. In other words, you and I are not to sit back and be saved and satisfied. We can't put the cruise control on. Just because salvation is God's gift to us does not mean that the Christian life is a passive endeavor. It's not a spectator sport where we just sit back and watch. God's always the initiator, but you and I have to follow. God begins a good work in us, He continues it, and He completes it, but you and I have to respond. An analogy would be our physical birth. At birth, we're given everything we need for life. We're we're born complete, but we need to grow. And to grow, we need to eat right, sleep right, exercise. We need to go to school and train our minds. In the same way, when it comes to faith, we've got a role to play. It's like what Paul says in Philippians 2 when he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul used the phrase work out that was used in ancient times uh, of a field that you already owned. You owned the field, but you had to plow it. You had to plant the seed. You had to take care of it. If it was rich in minerals or precious stones, you had to dig all those out. So you had work to do. God put everything in that soil that 
was needed for that, that crop to grow, but you've got a part to play. Likewise, if you're in Christ, you've already been given salvation. God owns you. God indwells you. You've been bought with a price, but the Bible says you've got to glorify God in your body just as you would work a field to maximize the crop in your life. You have to apply yourself. Salvation is not like a toy that we put on a shelf and we take it down and look at it today and we put it back. You and I are stewards of the eternal life that God has given us in Christ Jesus. And one of these days as stewards, we will have to stand before the Bema seat of Christ and we'll have to give an account. Peter says here in verse 5 that we're to make every effort. Some translations use the word diligent here. We are to be diligent, verse 5 says. The word that Peter uses was, was the Greek word used in the New Testament when Mary made haste to go and visit Elizabeth. As soon as she was told about the child growing in her womb, Mary made haste. She was diligent to get up and get going to go see Elizabeth. Well, Peter is saying we're to be like that. We're, we're to get up, get busy. We're to make every effort. We're to, we're to be diligent. And notice what he says we're to be diligent about. Verse 5, that we're to make haste to be virtuous. To the Greek philosophers, this word referred to the fulfillment of a thing. In other words, becoming what you were made to be. Just like a farmer's field was virtuous if it produced crops, your life will be virtuous if you become what God wants you to be. When you are yielded to living out God's purposes for your life, you are virtuous. If you fill your life with the worthless corruption in the world, your life is not being filled with what God intends your life to be filled with. You're not being virtuous. You are to be virtuous by filling your life with what God desires. There's the, also the idea of moral purity in this word. If we are virtuous in living for God, it goes without saying that we're not to be living in the filth of the world. Ephesians 5.3 says, But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. Are you making haste? Are you being diligent? To be virtuous. He goes on to say, make haste to be knowledgeable. Verse 5. It's like Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Pay, a, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. We're to make haste to be knowledgeable. Knowledgeable in the things of God. Now yes, knowledge has got to be applied. But you've still got to be knowledgeable to know what you're supposed to apply. We need to learn God's Word. 
And then take the things in God's Word and live them out. We need to work on building a Christian worldview. We need to train our minds on Christian truth. Paul says in, in Romans 12, we need to be renewed in our thinking. And we're to make haste in this. The church historian Kenneth Scott Latterette once said that what made the early Christians stand out in their culture is that they outthought and outdied all of their contemporaries. Outthought and outdied. In verse 6, Peter says here that we are to make haste to be self controlled. Proverbs 16 32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Proverbs 25, 28 says, Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. How are you doing at self-control? At ruling over your spirit. Don't forget, we have a power in us. The person of the Holy Spirit. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is what? Self-control. You have a problem with anger, the Holy Spirit can help you conquer that. You have a problem with bad language, He can help you uh, conquer that. You have a problem with worry, He can help you conquer that. Exercise self-control through the power of the Spirit. Make haste to do so. He goes on here to say it's your responsibility, my, my responsibility to make haste to persevere. The Greek word here is hupomene. It refers to bearing up under a load. We go through life with trials and tribulations. We go through life with burdens. We're weighed down. And, and the Bible says that, that we're, we're to persevere this, this quality that God puts in us, this hupomene. We're able to, to bear up under whatever load we face in the world. God gives us the power to be able to bear up. How about the trials that you have you weighed down right now? Folks, we need to remember that our days are to be filled with patience and perseverance. We cannot quit. Again, we've got the power of Christ in us to help us. God's Word tells us that God will even send us trials to grow our character and our perseverance. Peter goes on to say here, make haste to be godly. There in verse 6, we're to allow the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and conform us more and more every day to the image of Christ. Are you becoming more like Christ? Are you a godly man or a godly woman? You know, we've got a lot of good men and women in the world, but what we need more of is godly men and women in the world. Men and women in the world who are more like Jesus. We're to make haste. Then Paul says here, um, Peter says here, we're to make haste to exercise brotherly kindness. In verse 7, the word is Philadelphia, love of the brethren. 
phileo, friendship love, delphia or delphos, brothers. We're to practice a brotherly love, a brotherly affection toward one another. After all, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're in the same family. And so we are to model phileo love to other people. Model phileo love in the fellowship of the church. An angry lady said to her pastor one time, Pastor, I dislike this church. I dislike my Sunday school class and teacher. I dislike you. And by the way, Pastor, my children also dislike everything also. Her kids were just parroting her. Echoing her. What are your children learning about Philadelphia, love of the brethren from you. Are they seeing this demonstrated in your life towards your brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, I've known of people in the church who unfriend people on social media simply because their friend might have had a spat with somebody or, or parents that unfriend another adult because their kids don't get along. Folks, we got to do better at showing love of the brethren. If everybody was the same, then all the calls in the Bible for brotherly love and, the, and unity really would lose all their punch. Things have to be challenging at times in order for us to really practice brotherly love. And then he says, make haste to add to your brotherly love, agape love. This is the word for love that's the self-giving, self-sacrificing type love. This is love at a whole deeper level. A love where you look at other people's needs and you're able to set aside your needs and what you want, your desires, for their sake. Putting yourself last. Agape love. That's more than just patting people on the back who are like you or agree with you. Jesus said our righteousness has got to go far beyond that. How about in your agape love? Do you agape love even people who are very unlike you? Folks, Peter, these seven virtues that Peter is talking about here are marks of Christian growth. Marks of Christian growth. We are, he says, where we are continuing to lack these qualities, we're refusing to grow up. And then thirdly, I want you to see, progress in growth bears its own kind of fruit. Look at verses 8 through 11. He says here, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As long as we refuse to grow up, we limit what God is able to do with us. 
That's the tragic thing about Christians who are saved and satisfied and never really seem to mature in their faith. They, they are limiting what, what God wants to do in and through them. But when we practice these virtues that he's just talked about, notice what happens in verse 8. He points out that we're useful to the Lord. We become useful. God's able to use us in greater ways. A believer who's making haste to supply all of these virtues in his or her own life is becoming more and more a tool in the hands of the Lord to reach a dark and dying world. Not only are we useful to the Lord, but we're also fruitful, he points out in verses 8 and 9. And one of the things that Jesus said we're to be about in the Christian life is bearing fruit. Jesus said in John 15 that when we bear fruit, we show ourselves to be his disciples. If there is no fruit in your Christian walk that reveals God's grace to the world and to your family, then that ought to be like a neon sign screaming to you that things are not in your Christian life as they ought to be. A Christian who's not putting a priority on their Christian growth shows, Peter says, that they are being short-sighted and even blind because they're living for the world. They're blind. They've forgotten what it means to be lost. They've forgotten the price paid for their redemption. They've forgotten that they've been cleansed from, from all of their sins. Peter is saying that those who fail to obey these admonitions are living like they have forgotten everything that Jesus Christ did for them. And then in verse 10 he points out we gain confidence. We gain confidence. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. I've spoken to Christians on a number of occasions who confess that they just coasted through their Christian life. Some of them have spoken to me, they look back on their Christian life and they even doubt their salvation because they never saw any fruit. I knew a senior adult man one time who would always come forward bawling his eyes out at the end of the service. He said, Pastor, I think about how I've wasted my life after being saved and I've wasted my life so much now as I look back, I wonder if I was really even converted to begin with. And so I had to deal with him over that. But Peter says when we put all these things into practice and our Christian lives become more fruitful, there's a great confidence and assurance that we gain. You know why we gain that? Because we see God's thumbprints all over our lives. We see what's happened in our lives and the fruit that God's helped us to have. And we know that none of that was because of us. We're able to look back and see that it was Christ every inch of the way. And it gives us great confidence and assurance in our election and calling. You see what he's saying here? 
a life of obedience, a life of bearing fruit, as you look back over a life like that, that gives you confidence and assurance of God's calling and election of your life. And then lastly, he points out in verse 11, we lay up treasure for ourselves in heaven. He says, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Folks, be grateful today for God's provision of your salvation. As you think back of all the circumstances that were going on in your life when you were saved, I don't care if you were seven years old or 17 or 70, when you look back at all the circumstances in your life when you came to Christ, you know who made all that possible? You know who did that? Who brought about all that conviction in your life and drew you to Christ? God did that. God did that. God gave you salvation. He gave you the gift of eternal life. He provided everything necessary in order for your sins to be washed away, for you to be cleansed. God did that in Christ. Be grateful that with your redemption in Christ, along with that redemption, He gave you everything that you needed as as His child now, adopted into His family. He gave you everything that was required to live your Christian faith out in an upside-down world. He didn't throw you to the wolves. He didn't, there was no lack in what he did and what he gave you. No lack whatsoever. He gave you what you need. And so you and I need to lay aside any excuses that we have that we can't live the Christian life. The world's just too dark. It's too difficult. The pressures on Christians are too great. The trials and tribulations are too many. We need to lay all those excuses aside because whatever you're facing in your life, in Christ, God's given you what you need to persevere and make it through. Are you being a good steward of what God has done in your life? Are you being a good steward? If God saved you and gave you everything you need to persevere and live a fruitful Christian life, are you making haste? Are you being diligent to add all these things to your faith that Peter has just talked about? Are you sitting back and coasting and being saved and satisfied? And for you, the Christian life is just a spectator sport. And you're not pressing forward toward the goal of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. You and I need to press on and be good stewards. Christian growth is difficult at times. The Bible is being very honest about that. But along with that honesty is the promise that you have everything in God that you need.
is growth happening in you. It's a constant process. Sanctification is lifelong. You never grow out of this. When you wake up in the morning, the need to grow in the likeness of Christ and be sanctified is just as great tomorrow as it was today and it'll be just as great the day after that. Until you see Jesus, you're to press on and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Knowing again who the power and the resources come from. It comes from God. Amen. Father, we thank you for these words of Simon Peter reminding us of the depth, the riches, the glory of what God's given us in Christ. There's no shortcoming with you. There's no lack. The Christian has provision. Lord, remind us of that in a difficult world, a dark world, that we have what it takes in order to grow. And we're not to sit back and coast and glide and just watch as others are about your business. But Lord, because of your grace and mercy in our lives, bringing about conversion, we need to live lives of daily surrender. And Lord, the beautiful thing about that, we're going to be able to look back one day and we're going to be able to praise you all the more for the great things that you have done. Lord, I pray for the one this morning who needs to come to Christ. Your Spirit's been drawing them. May they come to Christ and begin this journey today and confess you before men. And I pray for those who've been coasting. And Lord, they've not been diligent to make haste about these things. There needs to be a recommitment in their lives. There needs to be a surrender to getting back what you called them to do at the beginning. They need to grow. And they need to bear fruit. So Father, I pray for a fresh work of your grace in their hearts. Lord, may we all be diligent about your work in and through us so that one day when it's our time to meet Jesus, we'll hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. We make this our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand please?